This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. Everybody is talking about Harry, Prince Harry, and his new memoir, Spare, which was released on Tuesday. Prior to the much-anticipated unveiling, Harry gave a few television interviews about his story, which he says he wants to own. And that, he says, is the main reason why he's telling what he says is the truth. But what does Harry's memoir mean for the future of the monarchy and the legacy of the late Queen Elizabeth? While filling in for Libby on Monday, I was joined by our Zoomer squad to discuss. Peter Mugrich is senior editor at Zoomer magazine. David Kravitz is chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. And Bill Van Gorder is chief operating officer and chief policy officer of CARP, a new vision of aging. Well, you know, when, when this for, for story was first uh, proposed, I thought, gee, what, what do I even know about this? And do I even care? And I thought, well, maybe Fair. I'm out of the loop. <laughs> I, uh, I talked with some CARP members this morning after I knew we would be discussing this. And what I basically heard from them was, you know, um, People are so tired of listening to uh, the doom and gloom news that we're hearing between uh, between wars and climate and uh, financial concerns that they're looking for a soap opera. And this is a really interesting uh, uh, soap opera. Uh, they also reminded me that royalty has had relationship dramas throughout history. This isn't anything new when it comes to royal family. So it's interesting, probably more from an entertainment point of view than a real concern that this will really affect them or the uh, rest of the world. And that would seem to indicate to me, to answer your direct question, uh, that uh, I don't don't think uh, people uh, much care about the current royalty. They're going to have to learn to love the new king before this kind of thing bothers them at all. Mm. David. Well, I like, I'm glad Bill said something about history because I think that if we're looking at this through a Zoomer lens, the generational issue here, everybody, any individual could have an opinion. I like the royal family. I don't like the royal family. But generationally, I think the Zoomers maybe have a better uh, understanding of past history and past dramas and that the royal families of as far back as you can go have had scandals, have had divorces, have had secret lovers, have had uh, uh, recalcitrant offspring who <laughs> embarrassed the old. I mean, one of Queen Victoria's sons was rumored to be Jack the Ripper, for heaven's sake. I mean, I mean it's been it's it's an old movie. And and. Uh, Zoomers, too, when we were of that uh, young and restless age, we always thought young people always think they're the first people that ever experienced this or that we no one ever saw this before. This is new. Well, it isn't new. It's been around a long time. This, too, shall pass. And the only difference is now fed by social media and sort of the inescapability of it all. I think it'll play itself out a little quicker, maybe, than it would have been in the past because people are just going to say, well, 
fine and move on. <laughs> Peter, I know this is a hot topic on everythingzoomer.com, yeah, as in Zoomer magazine. Yeah. So you probably know more than most well, of us. <laughs> I, I wouldn't claim to know more, but I, I do. I do sort of follow it, and I, I follow the reaction from uh, readers, and and um, a, a lot of people are are sort of um, turning on Harry because he's coming off, um, you know. He signed that big contract with who did he sign it with David uh, Netflix was Netflix, it yes. and for a while they were, like they just weren't producing anything newsworthy and you know their their ratings were floundering and now he's obviously stepped it up and he, and he's sort of hammering the royal family his dad his brothers on every angle and um, it looks to be like a like a ratings goose you know like he's trying to to uh, and and. And then, uh, and then he has the sort of the temerity to say, on the other hand, but I still love my family, and I want to repair relations, and I want to, you know. So I, he's playing he's playing a funny game, and I think um, you know af- after the initial sort of shock value, I, I, I think people are going to turn on him and Megan and and just you know say we've had enough, you know that's all you got, you know say your piece, and then I think they're they're going to sort of fade. Peter Mugrich, senior editor at Zoomer Magazine, David Kravitz, chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, CARP's chief operating officer and chief policy officer. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. You've heard Mayor John Tory's explanation. Toronto needs 200 more police officers to make the city safe because he says people are extremely anxious about violent crime. These 200 additional officers will be hired at an extra cost of $48 million, or a 4.3% increase to the police budget. The push for more officer resources is at odds with critics' calls to defund police in favor of redirecting money to community initiatives that aim to address root causes of violence. In fact, in a written deputation to Monday's Police Services Board meeting, not-for-profit community legal clinic Black Legal Action Center says it is extremely concerned by the proposal, arguing the increase in police officers will negatively impact Black communities and further strain their relationship with Toronto Police. To offer this perspective on the story, I was joined by Desmond Cole, journalist, broadcaster, activist, and author. He is also a black man living in Toronto. Toronto is the most policed city in Canada already. And so if the logic was that policing keeps people safe, Toronto would already be the safest city in the world. All of the American cities that are teeming with police officers and canine units and tanks and all of these kind of paramilitary vehicles, those would be the safest places in the world. And yet people are feeling and being the least safe in those places. Right. So simply increasing the police budget and putting more officers who are, by the way, reacting to crime, they're not present when crime happens. This is not the solution. But of course, Black Legal Action Center is also pointing out that police 
have disproportionately targeted black communities, and I would add indigenous communities. So we're much less safe every time more police officers are deployed. Right. I like that line that these 200 officers typically are reacting to crime rather than preventing crime. Um, and, and to your point, it was not that long ago. It was within the last year that then Chief Raymer apologized to black communities for a disproportionate use of violence by police officers against black and indigenous people. So other than offering that apology, Several months ago, what has changed? That's a great question for the police, and that's why I'm at police headquarters today at this police services board meeting, speaking out against this with hundreds of other Torontonians because the so-called apology was lip service. Nothing has changed. Uh, James Raymer said that it was going to be a difficult time for his officers when those statistics showing disproportionate use of force against black people, disproportionate strip searching, disproportionate shootings and killings, which we've already known about. Raymer had an internal memo leaked where he said to his boys, hey, this is going to be a really hard time for us. That's what that apology was about. It was about apologizing to the police service for having to embarrass them through statistical data. But the data didn't actually prompt the police to do anything. Everybody knows about their racist history. If you didn't believe it before, now you can read their own data. But they want to be rewarded after presenting that data about their racism uh, from the public. Yeah, and I think, Desmond, I think more white people in this city are starting to get it. We're starting to hear... Uh, and see the evidence and understand, not obviously from a personal perspective, but at least empathize with what is going on uh, among people who are racialized, who are Black, Indigenous, and also living in poverty. I think we're starting to get it. Well, I'm glad you mentioned poverty as well, because this is a class issue um, as much as it is a racial issue. And so um, a lot of the uh, people who are living in poverty in the city of Toronto, who are living in encampments, who are sleeping in doorways, who are being swept up by police raids, only to be tossed right back out into the street again, they're white. Uh, but they happen to be extremely low-income right. white people. And so in all of our communities where we see people struggling with poverty, struggling with mental health issues, with addiction, with being able to ha- uh, hang on to a steady job, I mean, A lot of people have lost their jobs over the last couple of years of the pandemic. Everywhere that you see that social outcome, you also see more policing. We have seen two deputations so far out of about, I'd say, a dozen this morning at Police Services Board. And all of them have been about defunding the police, save for two. The two people who have spoken in favor of this police increase are business improvement associations, the very organizations that pay so that you don't have to see homelessness. You can come and be a tourist and go shopping in Toronto and don't have to worry about seeing homeless people. John Tory himself said that he consulted with the business community, didn't he? So it's a very clear class divide in this city that is pitting those who are privileged enough to not want to look at homelessness and poverty and dysfunction against those who are actually living it. Desmond Cole, journalist, broadcaster, activist, and author. He joined me on Monday, the day there was unanimous approval for the proposed police budget at a meeting of the Toronto Police Services Board. 
You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, strategies to save on groceries and waste less food. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. On Wednesday, we focused on food, especially food waste at both the industrial and the personal level. The current context is record food inflation of 11.4%. It's affecting everyone, but especially lower and fixed income families and older couples or older individuals who struggle to buy enough food to live well. Most food waste happens during manufacturing and processing, and it's been calculated to add up to nearly five tons, worth about $21 billion. At home, on average, we waste 140 kilograms of food a year, worth more than $1,300. Libby discussed strategies to waste less food with a panel of experts. Rose Reisman is a caterer and cookbook author. Brody Slaser is VP of Operations at Flash Food, Inc., which is an app that sells food close to its best before date at a deep discount as well as Lori Nichols, CEO of Second Harvest. 58% of all the food produced for Canadians is getting lost or wasted, and much further up the supply chain than most people think. You have uh, a couple of pretty scary statistics. One is that for every grocery store, there are four food charities, and that only 4% of, of food that uh, is going to be wasted gets rescued. Why, why is uh, that such a small number? Well, because there's just so much opportunity. So if 96% of all this 58% of food, these billions of dollars worth of food, could be diverted to a uh, human being, which is its intended purpose, not only is it benefiting people, it's also staying out of landfill. And I think that's where the biggest challenge is. When food ends up in landfill, it creates methane gas. It is a direct and significant contributor to the climate crisis. So it, it's a really simple solution of like, let's keep that away from, from landfills and just get it to charities and nonprofits. Brody Slaser, uh, you are the VP of operations at Flash Food, which is one of a growing number of food recovery apps. And how's business? So we like to think of ourselves as a triple win where um, people have a great opportunity to save money on fresh deals of food that's perfectly healthy to consume. Um, we are also impacting the environment, decreasing the environmental impact of food waste. As Lori mentioned, the, the methane gas that's created from food waste when it ends up in a landfill is, is something that we're looking to um, help decrease over time as we save more deals and rescue more food. And then we're also helping the grocers find a way to get the food into homes versus having to dispose of it, which which doesn't feel good for anyone. Um, and that's that's how we're really trying to tackle this through um, consumers being able to purchase items at home and then go and pick them up directly at the grocery store. Rose, uh, what have you found among your clients? Are are they getting more into using these apps or finding other ways to stop food waste? Yeah, they're starting for sure. Um, I would say, you know, anything from um, 
seniors right down to the younger people. I know my, my daughters, one of my daughters uses it, and she loves it. She can go to exclusive stores like Pusateri's and end up with, um, you know, a meal, a soup, and a salad for $10, which she would normally never go in and do. And then it also is encouraging people to eat more fruits and vegetables. So what if something is a little bruised? You know, you can peel away the skin and still enjoy it. So I think it's ultimately incredible for um, awareness of, of better eating. And, you know, I asked myself at one point, why wouldn't people just go into the store and look for the discounts, right? Well, often you don't find where they are. Like I know bananas and certain fruits at some supermarkets are sort of stashed away. You don't see it. This way you can go on every day, every other day, just see what's what's going on. And for instance, if I know I'm making a Sunday night dinner, it's really know that I, nice that I can get a flank steak for half price. That's huge to no matter, I think, no matter what budget you're, you're following. Let's go around our virtual table and see what our panelists want to leave us with, starting with Brody. Be comfortable with buying foods that are are less than perfect. You know, there's all kinds of different solutions out there, and flash food is just a part of this, this massive problem that we're trying to solve. But be okay with something that might expire tonight. It's still good. Go ahead. Cook it. Throw it on the grill. Lori? Inflation is at all time high. I would say shop less. Just shop less, buy less, and you're going to waste less. And if you are a food industry or business, please, if you have surplus food, and you do, connect with Second Harvest and get on the Second Harvest app and donate it to a family that needs it. Okay, Rose Reisman, last 20 seconds to you. Last 20, you've got to get on these apps because just getting on them in the last few days, I'm shocked at what you can get. And I think people will be stunned to know that they can get really good quality meat and cheeses for such a discount price that you you wouldn't find in the stores or cutting coupons or running to 10 stores, waste your time. So I beg people to look at any one of these apps to try it out. Rose Reisman, caterer and cookbook author, Lori Nichols, CEO of Second Harvest, and Brody Slacer, VP of Operations at Flash Food, Inc., an app that sells food close to its best before date at a deep discount. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. After all that travel chaos over the Christmas holidays, members of the Commons Transportation Committee in Ottawa have launched a study that looks into the poor treatment of rail and air passengers during that time. They called on Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra and representatives with Via Rail and the three main Canadian airlines to testify, which happened on Thursday. We wondered on Fight Back this week whether there is a chance something positive will come out of this study. The complaints process is hopelessly backed up and cumbersome, and it appears there is little appetite to make the key transportation players treat customers any better. Joining Libby on Tuesday to discuss, Dr. Carl Moore, an airline industry analyst and professor at McGill University in Montreal, and John Graddock, a faculty lecturer at McGill and a former executive with Air Canada. I think there has to be a a much more in-depth review about what's going on with respect to customer service in the airline industry. I think that, you know, the airline industry is still scrambling to get people. Uh, staff, and they are also, you know, going out there and trying to maximize profitability by offering a pretty aggressive flight schedule. So uh, we saw the impact of both uh, during the Christmas period when 
we uh, got hit with what we call a traditional winter welcome with the snowstorms, but a little bit heavier in Western Canada. But uh, it seems that the airlines really have uh, got themselves into a into a bind by putting a, out a fairly aggressive schedule that really doesn't take into account the need for customer service to be part of that equation. Okay. Uh, Carl Moore, are they just going to hide behind this provision that says that they don't have to compensate people if it was a weather issue? Well, something where the rules uh, from the Canadian Transport Agency have tightened up in the last year, going in the right direction. So I think that there's going to be, it's going to be more demanding in the past. And it's so much bad publicity. I think the airlines, particularly, you know, the big players like Air Canada, WestJet, uh, Sunwing and some of the other ones are going to respond more than they would have passed partly because they're required, partly because the optics are so bad. And when you think about this, coming out of COVID-19, it was the worst time in aviation history. And I've talked to people who've been around the agent, you know, around the industry 50 years, and they agree that they've never seen anything like it. And the airlines in Canada, much of the world cut back too much, as did the airports. So there was people retiring, and so getting flight attendants, baggage handlers, and pilots trained, you know, the pilots particularly take a, a quite a bit of time to train or retrain. Um, so there are some legitimate reasons why it somewhat fell apart, but winter is not a surprise in Canada. And the fact is that the airlines can see from bookings that there's going to be a lot of revenge travel and people getting out that they've been stuck for a year or two and have the money to spend on it. So this was, in retrospect, not surprising, and I think things have got to change, at least to some degree, and I'm slightly more optimistic than John, but uh, John's got even more experience than I have. John, do you agree? Well, I think it's, you know, I think the question, you know, what's the accountability of a business to, in fact, hold on to your to your money when you prepay for these services? Uh, and, you know, and then not deliver that service and they, and that, and what recourse does a passenger have to get, you know, some compensation for that? And the air, and it's all in the airline's control. And I think that that's where the Minister of Transport has basically made some statements that there has to be some responsibility, you know, back to the airlines to somehow, some way recognize their need to provide service and, uh, not to leave it to the passenger to chase his money his or her money back. And I think that that's a change, which I think the minister is contemplating, which we'll see on Thursday, how far he's taken that thinking. Dr. Moore, what would you like to leave us with 20 seconds? I see it's going to get better, but it's still pretty dark days. And John Graddick, your 20 seconds. Uh, Pressure's on the minister to basically come up with a solution. I think that, you know, nice for him to say that, you know, He's, you know, finds this situation unacceptable. But I think, you know, I think the time to basically take some positive action is about ready. Is it should be now and uh, no more excuses. Let's do something. Dr. Carl Moore, an airline industry analyst and professor at McGill University, and John Graddock, faculty lecturer at McGill and a former executive with Air Canada. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. William in Newmarket phoned about the difficulty in trying to get a refund from one of the airlines. I heard somebody say, you know, of course, the airlines want to make money. But, I mean, the federal government gives them all kinds of money, you know, and it, uh, you know, to help them through the rough times there at the pandemic. Yeah, you know, I've been waiting for, for uh, money from Air Canada for three years. In two months, it'll be three years. And, uh, you know, it's just ridiculous. All they do is run me in circles. I just got a, a phone call before Christmas saying, you know, my, uh, my credit would be processed in, in another 10 weeks. And I don't expect to hear anything from them, to tell you the truth, because this is about the third time they've done this. Donald in Claremont also called about his experience in trying to get money back. I had my, my trip. I was offered a full cancellation after the uh, hurricane in September. I was told I would get a full refund in, in two to three weeks. It's now four months later. They don't even answer the phone anymore. They just say, thank you for your patience. This is what I don't understand. Lawyers and car dealers have to do the same thing. Put the client's money in a trust account, and then if they don't provide goods and services, it's in a trust account. You just write a check and send it back to the customer. How they can do this, it's got to be, it's almost like a Ponzi scheme. Sally in Etobicoke phoned about Prince Harry's new book, Spare. My thoughts are really disappointing. He has not only betrayed his uh family, but he has also betrayed his mother's legacy. She is deceased, and this is what he comes out with, little, uh, you know, tattletale on his brothers and his family. Oh, look, I'm the injured one. It's really sad, and he needs to grow up and uh, take ownership. Doreen in Kingston called with a different point of view. Well, I admire, I love Harry. And I think it's a shame when they blame, um, uh, oh gosh, his wife for taking him out because in my eyes and what I read, she rescued him because the boy was never happy. Uh, look at him, the pain, emotional pain he was in when his mom died and they had to look so staunch and not let their emotions come out in tears. He's been damaged by that, but God love him and God love his wife for taking him out of a situation, a lifestyle that he was not happy with. Um, so I, I love and admire him for doing that. And I think the probably, in my guess, would be the only people who are against him for, for shedding light on what it's really like to live in the royalty. I never understood their purpose to begin with. Uh, but I did say God saved the Queen. I admired uh, Queen Elizabeth. But I will never say God save the king as long as Charles is there. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Diane in Woodstock, who phoned during our segment on food waste. I used to go to the store and I would buy lots of fruits and vegetables. Everything looked good. By the time you got it home, put it in your fridge, waited a couple of days to cook it, it was spoiled. So you spend all that money 
and you have no idea how long it's been on the shelf before you buy it. Because when you buy fresh broccoli and, and cauliflower, there's no best before date on it. You bring it home. I have all the best containers that you can buy to preserve them, and yet they still rot before you cook them. Mm-hmm. So what I have done, uh, because we're on a fixed income as seniors, I've changed the way I shop. We do a menu planning before I go to the store. I only buy what we're going to eat that particular week. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.